previously on Joe Declassified Spec Ops. G.I. Joe Extreme is definitely kind of the... It, it, it's, it again falls in that era of G.I. Joe trying to find its way back to retail. I keep trying to say my ass, but it's really difficult. <laughs> That's... Uh, you got an accent. What are you going to do? I, I know, but, you know, I'll be talking and I'll, I'll like hear something coming back and I'm like, damn, that just dropped out of nowhere. This is Mo and Order, and welcome to a very special episode of Joe Declassified Spec Ops. Tonight on JDSO, the Declassified team sits down with G. Wayne Miller, author of Toy Wars, who takes us back in time to a rather ambitious but ultimately cataclysmic era, not only in G.I. Joe's history, but Hasbro's. It's kind of like that episode where the Joes and the Cobras end up in ancient Greece, except it really happened. This is Joe Declassified Spec Ops. <laughs> All right, welcome to Joe Declassified Spec Ops. Uh, I believe this is episode eight. Uh, today we're actually joined by someone that uh, that a few of you listeners, if not a lot of you listeners, probably actually consider uh, someone who's who's given us a, a great deal of uh, printed history that isn't really available anywhere else. Uh, you know, we can talk to former Hasbro designers, we can do interviews until we're blue in the face, but, you know, someone actually managed to put in a book form, uh, in an almost biblical sense, uh, certain parts of history that uh, we all sort of hold dear or just extremely interested in. I am, of course, Gyre Viper, Gary. I'm joined with by uh, Jared, uh, Mr. Jamin Stone. Jared, how are you? I'm doing great, Gary. Yeah. Looks like it's just us tonight, which is perfectly fine, uh, because we are, you know, joined by uh, our guest, and uh, we are extremely grateful to have him on. Uh, we've been uh, trying to get him on for a while, and uh, this is just, this is perfect. So, um, Jared, why don't you uh, introduce our guest, or at least give him a chance to introduce himself, and uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, they were joined by a special guest, uh, the author G. Wayne Miller. Uh, During the early and mid-90s, Wayne had unprecedented access to Hasbro, including its head, Alan Hassenfeld. Uh, The resulting research resulted in a book uh, called Toy Wars, the epic struggle between G.I. Joe, Barbie, and the companies that make them. Toy Wars was initially released in 1998, but has just become available as an e-book from Random House. Wayne, welcome. Thank you guys for having me on. No, thank, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I know we've been trying to arrange this for a while, and uh, so I'm glad to finally be able to do it. Yeah, we're, we're very grateful to have you on. Well, Wayne, why don't you just start by giving us a little bit of an introduction uh, of, of yourself and, and the book, and uh, we'll just go from there. Okay. Uh, I'm a writer and author. I also do some documentary filmmaking. Um, I've written a number of books. Let me give you the background on this particular one. I live in Rhode Island. And as you know, Rhode Island is the home headquarters for the Hasbro Toy Company. And many years ago, before I even thought of this book, I became uh, sort of a friend with Alan Hassenfeld for all different sorts of reasons. He was involved in a political cause that I was writing about. So I got to know Alan. And Alan, as, as you probably know, is one of the sons, one of the two sons of Merrill Hassenfeld, who in turn was one of the sons of the Hathenfeld brothers who founded the company here in Rhode Island in the early 1900s. So in the course of this friendship, I was looking around for my next book topic. I did a couple of other books, and Alan intrigued me as a 
and the Hasbro Toy Company intrigued me. And long story short, I went to him one day, sat down with him at corporate headquarters in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and Al Varecki, who was then the number two guy at the company, and I said, you know, look, what I want to really do is done to my knowledge is come inside your company, spend a fair amount of time, turned out to be about three and a half to four years, uh, mostly full time, and write about what I see and write about you guys and the history of the company. And of course, I had no idea really of any of the changes that were about to take place. And amazingly, they both said, and I remember this day very clearly, um, sitting in, in one of their corporate conference rooms, they said, sure, that sounds okay, come on in. So they opened their doors to me, and they really opened without any preconditions. The only precondition was that I not disclose, obviously, any trade secrets. So there I was, showed up with my notebook and pen and with my tape recorder, and I got to sit in whatever, whatever meetings I wanted to. And so I sat in on quite a lot of them. Now, one of the central narratives of the book, of course, is the tremendous changes that were happening with the G.I. Joe line. And um, that constitutes a fair amount of the book, and we can get into that if you want. But So that's kind of me and how I got into the whole thing. And I it really, another one of the interests to me was, here we have a world of toys. And yet I knew from reading about Hasbro, reading about Mattel, which was their main competitor and still is, that it was an incredibly... Um, incredibly aggressive corporate world too so that irony between toys things that children like and these grown-up business people trying to make money and, and sort of having wars back and forth is where i came in on okay and wayne what was the state of gi joe you, you mentioned that it was a, a time of change what was the state of gi joe when you first began the project gi joe at in 1992, when I really showed up at Hasbro, was in another one of its state of declines, meaning the, the sales were were becoming very sluggish. Joe had gone through a series of these cycles uh, since it was introduced to Toy Fair in 1964. Um, and, and let me just give you a little little bit of a backstory on, on G.I. Joe. It was a, a toy that almost never happened. And when Merrill Hassenfeld, Alan's father, was running the company in 1963, a young designer came to him by the name of Larry Reiner and said, I've got this great idea for this doll. And Merrill's first reaction was, well, we're not going to call any toy we make for boys a doll. Hasbro at that time was in financial difficulty. They had lost a ton of money on a product called Flopper, which had been a total disaster. So Merrill bought the idea from Larry Reiner. Uh, interesting side story on that, too. Larry Reiner and his agent, a guy by the name of Stan Weston, and again, this is all recounted in the book, they wanted 5% of royalties for this toy going forward, forever, 5%. You can imagine what that would work out to today. And um, Merrill counter-offered counter and said, well, I'll give you 1%. The agent said, forget it. We're not going to, 1%, forget it. So Merrill came back with another counter-offer. He said, all right, I'll give you 75 grand one time. I own the rights forever. Stan Weston, the agent, came back and said, how about 100? So they had a deal. So you can imagine the money that would have been made by Weston and Reiner and their heirs had that uh, had they gotten even 1%. So Toys introduced, did really well. By the end of the 60s, it was, it was languishing again. 70s were kind of a slow period. And then Stephen Hassenfeld, who was Alan's uh, late brother, he died, and, and, and that story is also in the book. 
he, with some of his design people, reintroduced G.I. Joe. And it was no longer this foot tall toy, this action figure. They reintroduced it more in a Star Wars mode. And at that time, Kenner, which was a competing company, eventually bought by Hasbro, had made a lot of money with Star Wars. And that was the three and three quarter inch uh, toy. And that was the model, that was the toy that Steven brought to the market in the 1980s. But again, the toy business is very cyclical. So to circle back to, to your original question, by the time I came in, in the early 1990s, that model of Joe, meaning that size, that storyline, all the, the narrative, all of that had again sort of languished. And so they were at a crossroads. And, and there was really, you know, some, some debate within the company as to whether they could even continue with G.I. Joe. And so that was when a team of designers headed by Kirk Bazigian decided once more to reinvent Joe. And the upshot of that was uh, Sergeant Savage. From out of the past to save the future. Sergeant Savage and his Screaming Eagles. It also co coincided uh, with planning for the 30th anniversary year with the uh, Real American Heroes line. Um, so they had two things going on. They wanted to kind of cash in, as it were, on the nostalgia, and, and they produced a line of uh, 30... 30th commemorative toys that look pretty much like the ones 30 years ago. And then they introduced Sergeant Savage. Um, so they were at a crossroads. They didn't know whether they wanted to continue the line, but they were going to give it one more shot. And what resulted was Sergeant Savage, which did not itself last very long, as, as you guys certainly know. Well, Wayne, I, I, recall, uh, I recall in your book there was a, sort of a critical meeting on Sergeant Savage. I was wondering... Wondering if you could kind of go over that. What was what was that about? Well, did I, you know what? I'll do you one better. I'm going to read a little bit from the book, which can recount it better than I can from memory. That sounds fantastic. Okay, let, let me. I'm going to start with with, with a couple of passages. Here's, here's a passage from the scene where they from the book rather when they really knew they were in trouble. This was in 1993, and they had convened a focus group of young boys. And these were people who had self-selected as being G.I. Joe users, okay? They like G.I. Joe. So they get all these kids in a room, they warm them up and they start asking questions. And Rentel, this guy Rentel is, is the marketing person who was doing the focus group. And so uh, he says, anybody read comic books here? Most hands went up. Which ones are good, Rentel asked. X-Men and Spider-Man, one boy Robert said. Punisher, said Adam. What's the story there, Rentel said. What happens in X-Men or Spider-Man? They were human, but they got mutated, Robert said. Interesting, Rentel said. Cool. And when was the last time Robert had read X-Men? Yesterday, Robert answered. And Punisher, Rentel continued. What about that one? What do you like about it? All the guns and fighting, Adam said. By the way, I was actually sitting on the other side of a two-way mirror uh, watching all this. Asked to name their favorite video games, the boys mentioned X-Men, Street Fighter 2, and Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Asked what movies and TV shows topped their lists. The boys cited Ren and Snippy, Beavis and Butthead, Home Alone 2, and Jurassic Park, of which one boy said, I saw it three times. Spielberg's film had lived up to his advanced billing, having opened with a record $50 million, an astonishing total for a single weekend. Jurassic Park was well on its way to becoming the highest grossest film in history. Marvel still published the G.I. Joe comic every month, and the Joe animated TV series was still on in most major markets. But so far, 
Not one boy had named the property in any context, and these were users. So here you have the core group, and they weren't even talking about Joe. So the planning goes on, and, and the design goes on, and then uh, Kirk Bazigian brings his crew together. And these, again, are all designers and marketing people, focus group people, sales people. This is really what Kirk, who, who is still around, he doesn't work for Hasbro anymore, this was really his one last shot at, at things. And so, again, I'm going to read from the book. This is in 1993. One morning in May, Bazigian walked from his office to a presentation theater in a newly renovated section of corporate headquarters. He was wearing a 30th anniversary denim shirt and carrying a stack of documents. Bazigian greeted the senior members of the Hasbro Toy Division sales force and passed out condensed versions of the strategy guide. And by the way, I've been watching him develop this guide. We, we talk about that earlier in the book. He acknowledged the sorry state of Joe at retail, then informed the salesman that of 257 action figure lines introduced from 1982 through 1993, only 28 had been successful. You know what the batting average is, he said, 109. That's how treacherous this is. The salesman and woman hardly needed reminding. Bazigian's chief marker on Joe, Vinnie DeLeva, who was wearing a 30th anniversary watch and ring, walked around the room, handing everyone a manila envelope that was marked top secret and sealed with a gold stamp. Don't open this, he said. No one did. Bazigian was an armchair military historian. He had an extensive home military library, and one of his favorite activities was reading about Napoleon, MacArthur, and other great generals. He often quoted from their writings or speeches during G.I. Joe presentations, and he liked to think his marketing campaigns owed a small debt to their thinking. He reminded the sales force of all the headlines D-Day had been getting lately as the 50th anniversary of that heroic landing drew near. We've taken a look at all that and said, how do we bring G.I. Joe back to his military roots, Bazigian said. Deafening sound filled the room as the monitor flickered on. The Griffin Bacall ad agency had prepared a sizzle video designed to kindle interest in a new product. It featured World War II combat footage intercut with scenes from the movie Patton, in which George C. Scott plays the title role. From out of the past to save the future, the narrator announced as the camera zoomed in on Sergeant Savage figures. The documents will be handed out to you can now be opened, Deleva said when the video ended. It has secret information on how Sergeant Savage was developed. The sales force found a five-page marketing plan inside their envelopes. The cover was a color rendering of Savage by Joe Kubert, the legendary artist whose Sergeant Rock, a DC Comics title, had been one of the most popular World War II comics during Bazigian's youth. Bazigian had hired Kubert to draw the New Lines package art. His participation was prompted by more than nostalgia. Bazigian's resolve to create Savage has strengthened considerably last year with the rumor that Warner was, was making a Sergeant Rock movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mattel supposedly was willing to pay a staggering $5 million upfront guarantee for the rights to the toys, which would be targeted at the heart of the action figure market, one of the last categories where Mattel remained a weakling. Deleva held a Savage figure next to a basic Joe. Savage was taller by about three quarters of an inch and substantially beefier. This is not a puny G.I. Joe anymore, he said. He's muscular, he's heavy duty. Finally, a line with edge. 
this is hardcore, down and dirty, gritty military, Deleva said. We even got bullet holes in the packaging. Bazigian told the Savage story, which he, Deleva, designer Greg Bernstein, and others had concocted over the last year. In June 1994, that's when the toy was, was going to be coming out roughly. In June 1994, a Joe squad discovers a mysterious frozen tomb in a secret medical laboratory in Berlin. Its occupant, an American GI captured by a mad German 50 years ago, is flown to Langley Air Force Base, where scientists revive him. Robert Stephen Savage, a man out of time, is reborn, Bozigian said. He does not understand what women are doing in the military. He doesn't understand why soldiers don't salute snappily when an officer walks in the room. He has totally different values. Savage favored World War II vehicles and aircraft, outfitted with the weapons of today, an incongruity no more outrageous than teenagers metamorphosing into Power Rangers. Savage fought with his screaming eagles, a band of contemporary military renegades against the forces of General Blitz and his Iron Army, who suspiciously resembled but were not identified as Nazis. Bozikin had his sensitivities. It's time for something bold, guys, Bozikin said. This is bold, and it's only the beginning, Dilemma added. And so that's the scene where Savage was introduced to the sales force and, and all of the assembled um, corporate people. Uh, Alan and Al were not there. They later, of course, got a briefing on the line. So that meeting ended with great hope. And just a few months later, that, ent- that entire group of people was either laid off or reassigned. And uh, Savage lasted about a year. For, uh, for everyone listening, uh, in the... Um in the thread, I'll be posting photos of uh, some of the Sergeant Savage and some of the G.I. Joe Extreme pre-production stuff I have, including a, uh, a wax Sergeant Savage forep head that was used in a present, I, I assume one of the first presentation meetings for the actual, uh, you know, to premiere the sculpt and his actual look, uh, as well as a, a two-up head for it. And um, I also have a, uh, a, a bunch of their, uh, their kit bashes of... X-Force and Cadillacs and dinosaur figures, um, you know, bashed together to show a possible future scale competitor-wise for G.I. Joe, which would become extreme. Uh, So those were used in, you know, similar meetings for that. Um, I didn't know if there was something else you wanted to say about Savage, but uh, I did want to ask you, one of the things that we've heard is that Savage was going to be uh, released on the shelves uh, with the the three and three quarter lines. So they weren't going to be two separate lines, but they were going to coexist uh, at retail. Uh, can you speak to that at all? Uh, to the best of my recollection, that was, that was correct. They weren't going to entirely phase out the older line. They were going to bring this, they wanted to add, you know, they didn't want to get rid of the old, old meeting, just a few years old. They didn't want to get rid of the heritage of Joe by any means. So that, if I, again, if I recall correctly, the plan for that was to coexist with Savage, but Savage was where the growth was going to be. You know, they they needed some kind of a marketing jolt here. They needed they needed some pizzazz to get the get the line going again. Now, as I said earlier, and by the way, you and I have corresponded back and forth. Um, I have some a number of items from that period that I can photograph and send to you. Some of it made it to the shelves, some of it didn't. I have a Nicole Miller G.I. Joe tie, for example, that was never put into production that was supposed to um, supposed to have been, and then the line got killed. I have a pair of sneakers that was going to be this really cool line of sneakers. Wow. 
so I, I again, I, I guess we're just doing sound here, not not video. So I won't hold it up for, to the camera. Um, actually, actually, one we can see you. So if you want to hold it up, we'd love to see a right, comment right. on it. Oh, I, I, great th- idea. That's what we live for. Is this stuff? All right, and again, I can in the next couple of days, I can get you some you know better photographs to uh, send. Fantastic. You. All right, now. Wow, that is the greatest tie ever. As far as like, cool. <laughs> and look, there's the back. See that right there? Nicole wow, Miller. yeah. You know, she's a noted uh, designer. I have wow. no idea what they paid for this. I have worn this tie maybe once or twice. I'm, I'm not, as you guys are, <laughs> you know, a, a major collector. But anytime I've even brought this thing out, people, even people who aren't into Joe go, whoa, that's pretty cool. And it is pretty that cool. Is, that's incredible. I have no idea how many of these were produced. My guess is a handful. Um, so that's one little thing I have from my treasure chest. Let me show you the sneakers. There may have only been just a very, very few of them. I'm, in fact, I'm certain of this. Here you can see, you see the tag on that? Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a Hasbro tag on a pair of sneakers. Just toys. No, no. That's, you probably, you probably won't that's incredible. This they are in the back, just so you know. <laughs> the, just, <laughs> that just made my day. Actual. Those are, that's incredible. Yeah, they are. I can see you wearing those. I'm sorry, what? I said, I I was telling Gary, I I can see you wearing those. Yeah, right. (laughs) And here, here, if you look at the tongue of the shoe, we have Star Brigade. So it's kind of a mixed metaphor. Whoa, does that really say Star Brigade? That's crazy. That's insane. Oh, man, those are great. I'll take take a close-up photograph in high resolution, then you can figure out what it is. And here are the soles. They look pretty cool been worn of course um i have no idea these are 10 and a half so they would probably fit me i've never even tried them on i'll try them on you'll never get them back but i'll try them on you'll have to come to providence i will come to providence <laughs> let, let me show you a couple other things just again i've had these for years and just collected them i gave a lot of this stuff away to charity actually but i kept a few of these things here is this is an actual uh joe before savage the three and three quarter inch Manta ray, this may mean something to you, what it means to in terms of collectors, but what it means to me, you see this tag here? Yeah, yeah, the green card, yeah. This came from the last production run of G.I. Joe made in the United States. Made It was a factory in Central Falls, Rhode Island, right next to Pawtucket. And it literally came off the last line, and they gave wow. it to me. Wow, that is amazing. And the date on this, it may not have been the actual the final day, but it was the last production run, so it would have been a few days within this or a few weeks within this that they shut that line down for good, and, and then from there on, everything was made in China or Mexico. So that's kind of neat. So and I've got other stuff here. Um, I think most of this did make it to the stores. I kept this, the P-40 Warhawk, because I just thought that would be so cool someday. And I've got a videotape. It was a 30, it was actually 22-minute. Let me show you that. This, by the way, is the Savage. You're, I'm sure quite familiar. There are the bulls. Bulls are reading. And there was some concern there'd be there'd be some uh, backlash on bullet holes in <laughs> the toy, but there wasn't that I ever heard. Oh, just a quick question on the bullet holes. I remember reading uh, in the in your book uh, yeah. the meeting for the uh, original A Real American Hero line back in '80, I think. 
um, that uh, Stephen was very much opposed. He said, you know, we can show violence, but not the consequences of violence. He said, no bullets, only lasers. And, and then you get Sergeant Savage and you have bullet holes in the packaging. And I'm just kind of curious. Uh, I, I realize that Stephen passed away between the lines, but what, as far as the, what changed as far as the corporate attitude towards uh, that sort of violence? Well, I mean, you hit you hit on one of the big things that happened. Stephen, who was very adamant about that, was gone, um, and so I think also the culture changed a little bit in, in that ten year period, ten to, to twelve year period. Also, the, you know, the the corporate competition had heated up to to a very intense level. That um, you know, the culture had changed, and, and so had the company. It was now no longer run simply by Hassenfels. I mean, Alan was the was the CEO, obviously, and the chairman. But there were people working for him who were making a, a case, and I guess persuasively, um, that you needed to do a little bit more, if that's the right word. So a number of things changed. The corporate culture changed, and I think the larger culture changed. And as I said, I, I don't think there was any blowback on on the bolt holes when when that line finally did reach the consumer. You know, if, if you look at and really digress here, but if you look at Video games, which began to come into their own around that time. If you look at television, there's been a sea change in, in, in the greater culture. So things that in 1980, when Stephen made that edict, uh, were, were true or he felt to be true, no longer are true. But again, I'm digressing here. That's an anthropological discussion for another time, I guess. <laughs> and sorry, you, uh, I apologize for interrupting. You were going to show a video, uh, videotape? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think there it is right there, old-fashioned tape. I know that this was packaged with some of the toys. Running time, approximately 22 minutes. Uh, copyright 94, Hasbro. Old soldiers never die. This, this was the whole, the whole backstory for the line that Kirk Bazigian and Vinny DeLever and those guys all cooked up, put into cartoon form. Um, I'm not even sure I've watched this. I, I watched what they showed at those meetings, but they, I never saw the entire tape, the entire show. And as I mentioned earlier, very shortly after this, they had what, what I call Black Tuesday, when they laid people off, moved, moved people around. Kirk was put in charge of Play-Doh, and eventually he left the company because uh, that really wasn't his thing. They all went down to... New York City uh, to the aircraft carrier Intrepid, I believe, is the carrier where the thir- part of the 30th celebration was held. Now they had all just been moved; those who were still with the company, uh, but they were pretty, you know, they were pretty decent and maybe heroic as they were. They didn't disclose any of that at the 30th anniversary celebration. But when they got back to Rhode Island, they were all on different different lines. And there's a, a rather moving scene that I write about in the book about that 30th convention where masses of collectors, I had never seen so many collectors of anything in one place. It was crazy. Wow. So. You'd be, you'd be hard, pr- I mean, you know, not to completely, uh, you know, slag on the, uh, the current state of the hobby, but you probably wouldn't get that now. Really? Has it changed or? It's just, it's different. I mean, it's, um, you know, people look back on things like Savage and Extreme and they just, you know, cross their arms and pout and get angry or Sigma Six, which came later, you know, they're not, they're not, 
the, the hobby's never been big on change, and yet they're always asking for change. At the same time, we have Hasbro telling us now that they, they don't want to do two lines on the same shelves. And then they try it in the 30th anniversary with um, the Renegades cartoon, uh, you know, figures on the shelves at the same time as the other modern figures. And then people complain about that, even though they've been asking for two lines. It's, it's just a lot of, I don't want to call it hypocrisy, but it's a lot of, on both sides, it's a lot of... Uh, there's just so much bitterness, and it, it, it just—it's it, hard to get people to, to sort of uh, even go to a joke convention, you know, without without doom and gloom. It's uh, the big running joke is death of the line, you know, like something's going to end up killing GI Joe, which it very well could. I mean, even in your book, you talk about Hasbro almost selling to Mattel, which, uh, you know, I didn't know until I read your book. I was like, wait, I I assumed that something like that had come up, but I never realized it had gotten that far. So it's just it's just different now because at you know things change and at the same time people are afraid of change. It's the you know the age old tale. Yeah, and and again, I'm not you know I'm not privy to Hasbro's numbers um, at this point in time, but my perception is that you know their their big sellers are like Transformers. And yes, things have shifted in that direction. Of course, when you have when you have that movie line like that, it's it's kind of hard not to. Uh, uh, to get excited about that, maybe less excited about about the older toy lines. Although, speaking of older toy lines, uh, I had lunch with Alan not too long ago, and we were talking about Potato Head, and Potato Head still sells. Still sells. Wow, I classic toy. Wow, I think one of the one of the questions we wanted to ask you was uh, who you've kept in touch with over the years, uh, having spent so much time there, uh, entrenched or embedded, as you put it. Um, you know. That that's one of those things where I mean you, you you set out to to write this book, but you know I assume it's had some lasting relationships uh, on your end. Yeah, it, it has, and and the two the two prominent and and long lasting relationships are with both Alan and, and Al Varecchia. Um, Alan headed the company for a number of years, then he became chairman, and then he even dropped that duty. He still sits on the board. But his his heart and his passion and his energies now are in philanthropic causes. Um, he has he has the Hassenfeld Family Foundation, which is, as you might imagine, uh, incredibly well endowed. He spends much of his time tra- traveling the globe, speaking uh, about human rights issues, about child labor laws, and child uh, you know child labor in places like China. Um, I had lunch with him, as I mentioned, just a couple of weeks ago. He'd been overseas at yet another conference. He is involved with uh, Brandeis University, where he went to school. He's one of the trustees there. He's bringing some students down to Cuba on a, a cultural visit. So he's And he's also very active uh, politically in, in some causes here in Rhode Island, although he's not active politically in the sense of being a candidate. So he he has taken his position and, and you know his financial resources, which are quite deep, and put them into to good use. Um, so he's a he's a commendable man. He's he's a great guy too. Um, always hit it off with Alan. He was he was a frustrated writer, a fairly decent writer before he or his brother died, and he could call in to take over this this company. Um, and as you know from reading the book, there was a big question as to whether the he was much more a free spirit than his brother Stephen, um, and really had no business training. There was a lot of question as to whether he should or even could run the company, and, and he did. Al, after uh, Alan 
relinquished the CEO role by, by his choice, Al became the CEO. Um, and I've been in touch with Al and have lunch with him regularly. He, he would like a, a, a sequel of some kind written about Toy Wars. Do you think the scope would be larger or do you think it would be more contained? I don't know. You know, I, I haven't really gotten that far in, in my thinking. I, you know, I'm a writer, so I'm obligated to so many other different things. Yes. Um, so whether this would ever come to pass or not is, is an open question. Um, I mean, I have no plans to even propose that at this point, but it is a discussion I've had with Al and, you know, Al is still the chairman of the company. Uh, and Al's a good guy in it in his own right. Uh, he's done a lot of good philanthropically as well. And my guess is if, if I were to pursue something like this, I would probably have the cooperation of, of Hasbro, uh, certainly at, at some level, but the culture has changed dramatically uh, in terms of toys and in terms of, you know, the true advent of, of the internet. You know, we have, have an 18 year old son who's a digital native. You know, he wasn't even born when I was doing most of, of the work on this. And he, he, he grew up in a very different world. And, and so the very definition of play has changed. You were sort of hinting at some of the changes too in, in uh, saying that maybe there isn't quite as much passion from as many people about Joe and, and collecting as there once was. So I, I think intellectually, that's where, where I would want to go if I were to ever pick this up again. But also, you know, the personalities and, and the core lines. Potato Head has always fascinated me. Joe obviously has. Uh, Transformers would be interesting. But, you know, again, they have this, this major... Hollywood contract, and you know, I'm not sure how far anybody would get with that because that that is a truly uh, big franchise for them. Well, so. I mean, do you think that's kind of where Hasbro might actually see themselves? I mean, I know there's been since Disney bought Marvel, and is now about Lucasfilm. Everyone's now, is Disney going to buy Hasbro? I mean, do you think that Hasbro would ever just kind of turn to a, you know, to being a a studio over a toy company? Uh, I think that is a distinct possibility. I, I mean, I know even back, you know, almost 20 years ago when I was embedded there, uh, that was a big part of pretty much everyone's thinking. You know, they, they viewed the, the, the future synergistically, if I can use that word, where, where television, where movies, where entertainment in its many forms from board games, you know, the very old fashioned uh, board games to interactive to, to the internet. That was all considered a big part of their future. I think that is very much how Hasbro would view its future. And, and part of that future is already here. And, and, you, and you have to, I mean, play patterns have, have, they've just changed. As popular as Shoots and Ladders and The Game of Life and Monopoly and all those great brands are that Hasbro owns, uh, and a lot of that was because of the genius of Stephen, who, who bought Milton Bradley. As popular as those still are, I don't think it's where, and again, I'm speculating here, I don't have inside knowledge, but I don't think that's where the real, where the real money is for, for companies, and I don't think that's how families organize their time anymore. Are you, um, are you familiar at all with Skylanders? No, what is Skylanders? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a video game geared at children, but... Um, Basically, it's it's a line of action figures, and there's this portal device where every time you set a different Skylander on the portal, that's the character you play in the video game. And, oh, wow. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, that's kind of a, a, a step in the right direction, but I don't think it's the answer. So I was just curious if you're familiar with Skylanders, because, I mean, it takes toys and video games and forces them together. So you want to collect all 60 whatever Skylanders, and you want to play the game, and... 
So, but I, I'm not sure if that's that almost seems like too easy of an answer. So I'm wondering what the what the answer will be for a toy company, say like Hasbro, even Mattel, to to sort of uh, still be able to sell toys in such a strange, you know, world where you have like the Avengers film making just boatloads of money. But you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm I'm assuming the toys are doing well, but I don't know if they're doing well enough to justify doing the toys. I mean, I, obviously, it's something only Hasbro is privy to. Well, see, now you're making me more and more intrigued in the in the whole discussion because uh, those are very those are interesting and, and, and significant questions. And you know, and again, one of one of my goals in doing the book, and often one of my goals in doing other books, is really to sort of comment on the greater culture. You know, to write about where we we as a people of you know 300 million plus citizens now uh, are and, and so that I found that true then you know you, you can learn a lot about a culture by what the children do what they're asked to do what they're told to do what they do on their own and, and how they play I, I think it tells us something about us as a people so not to get too philosophical here but no that's fine it, it piqued my interest um, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask you this quote unquote but uh uh, was Mattel sort of as welcoming as Hasbro was? Because I noticed in your book, at one point, it really, it sort of seemed like Mattel was just the rest of the story, and the book was sort of pretty much about Hasbro. I mean, no, that's that's a that's a very valid comment, and it's it's very much true. And a, a number of the reviewers uh, astutely observed that. No, they they were not. Um, I think once they certainly granted me time with their executives and interviews and went to their showroom. They're very gracious, gracious and courteous. You know, I, again, I went out to their headquarters in California and spent time there. But it was all very structured, and I was always watched very carefully. It wasn't like Hasbro, where I, you know, I had my own ID. I would show up in the morning, I knew the guard, and I just I, I had all day to go wherever I wanted. It was amazing. It's not just talking from former Hasbro people I've talked to from back then. Um, sounds like you had a little more access than some of the people working there. Well, I did. <laughs> I mean, you had to, but at the same time, I mean, that's a lot of trust for a, for a company to to yeah. bestow on somebody. Well, and here's how it happened. Uh, it happened because of Alan and Al. You know, I'm I'm still on the staff of the Providence Journal. And they, they knew me by reputation. They knew my work. Um, so they knew I could be trusted. And, you know, if I gave my word, my word was my word with them. But even within that context, it's very unusual, I think, for, um, for people to get inside a company like that. And, but I did. And I think the second Mattel, and it probably was right away, heard that I was doing this, they, they probably had concerns. One was, well, we don't know this guy. Hasbro may, may trust them, but we don't know Again, I'm totally speculating about that, but they were—they did not, and and I wouldn't have, frankly, if I were them, have have let me in and do the same thing. So, it, in that sense, um, it was a bit one-sided, but I, I had to do the best I could with what I was given, which was a courteous reception at Mattel, interviews with the key people when I needed them and for whatever length of time I wanted them. Um, and that was it. They were not going to let me wander around in their marketing meetings or their design meetings or have lunch with their rank-and-file employees and so forth and so on. But did they give you a pair of the coolest shoes I've ever seen? No. <laughs> do you? Did they give you Star Brigade shoes? That's all I want to know. No. So, whatever. They're, they're loss. You want those shoes, I can tell. I don't think I've ever even heard of there being Star Brigade shoes. So, for me, it's just... Uh, it's just, I'm just awed. Like, the tie is cool. The tie is great. But the, yeah. tie, the tie seems very, um, 
seems like something that they would have given out anyways to Hasbro employees, where the shoes are just like to see a, to see Star Brigade on anything other than a lunchbox or a an action figure is just amazing to me. I'm just I'm in love with those. Well, you know, uh, this may have been the only pair they produced. I'll have to check my notes. It says attention to DMC. I don't know who that is. Are are you sample for? Ha- so it was a sample. It probably was. This is probably the only pair ever made. Wow. Wow. Well, that's very cool. I have a charity. I have a charity called Me. <laughs> and, but uh, no, seriously. Like I, I just my, when I was reading the book after a while, I just uh, the Mattel stuff kind of just seemed like you know you you had to talk about it. But I, I was actually kind of frustrated for you because who else was going to write this book? Uh, we have a lot of people in our hobby. Well, not a lot of people. We have someone in our hobby, I should say, James, um, who. James and actually and Mark Bellamo, uh, who write GI Joe books, and they don't have to, you know, they don't they don't have to spend all their money and time getting these figures, taking photos for everybody, putting it out there as a resource guide. But uh, but James took took on the uh, sort of 2000 era GI Joe, which is her, just completely frowned upon by a lot of collectors. He didn't have to go and spend all that time and money and resource to do a book that no one else was going to do. And that's what Toy Wars reminds me of is, you know, who else was out there saying, hey, Hasbro Mattel, you know, let me tell your story. And I think it's important. I mean, does it change? Does it does it make them any money? Probably not. And maybe that's what it comes down to. I don't know. But then there's no reason for Hasbro to have been so welcoming if they weren't really getting anything out of it. And uh, because, I mean, you're the, the story you're telling is really dramatic in the book as for Hasbro. It's actually almost the kind of thing a company wouldn't want out there to an extent, you know, their failures or their inability right. to get on the same page. And that's really kind of brave for a, a corporation to, and especially for toys. It's not like the world is leaning on toys. So, um, it was just, at one point I was just like, eh, Mattel, you know, I was just really involved in the Hasbro stuff. Yeah. Well, it, it, it was, you know, I made my case to, to the head of uh, Mattel and to other people there and, they rendered their verdict. I had no, I had no power whatsoever. I mean, I was a total outsider, so I couldn't go that route as, as deeply as I wanted. On the other hand, it, you know, not to use a bad pun, but I was like a kid in, in Candyland, Hasbro. It was like free to go where I wanted. I still wow. had my, I still had my badge somewhere. And, you know, after a certain point in time, everyone knew me there, so I didn't even need a badge. It's like, oh yeah, here's Wayne, and and uh, he's writing a book. Wow. I did want to ask you uh, before. You know, it, it winds on too much. Um, what your recollection of GI Joe Extreme was, because that's one of those swept under the table sort of thing. Because it because it was sort of at the same time ish with Savage and things getting pushed out of one way for another thing. Like, you know, Extreme is one of those um, sort of blacklisted things, kind of like Sergeant Savage with the hobby. But there there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things I think people don't know about Extreme. So I was wondering if you had any. Inside into that one. Did, did that come out? That came out of the Kenner, out of Cincinnati. Is that correct? Yeah, they they I, yeah. they were the ones in charge of of saving GI Joe at that point. With that. Well, and Wayne, just to kind of add to, to what Gary was was saying is, um, you know, one of my one of the things I found most interesting in the book was the the uh, transition from from uh, Hasbro to Kenner of the GI Joe line, and and almost that seemed almost to be a real slap in the face to a lot of the people that had worked there and also sort of a vengeance for the people that worked at Kenner for the success of the original G.I. Joe line, which kind of pushed Star Wars out of the way. So I was wondering if you could speak to that as well. 
I, I do have a passage in the book, and I'd have to go back to be perfectly candid and reread it on extreme, the, the vagaries and the ins and outs of that. I, off the top of my head, don't recall it as strongly as I do other parts of the book. But I will tell you, in terms of the, the larger question you asked about, you know, was this kind of a slap on the people who would handle Joe? And it, it absolutely was. Um, and at least that was certainly how they perceived it. Um, here was this group of people headed by uh, Bruce Stein, who turned out to be a marketing genius, uh, and, and he came into the fold when, when Hasbro bought Kenner and Tonker. They had inherited Star Wars, and for various other reasons, they were really seen as the knights in shining armor. They were the ones who were going to come in and uh, sort of tell the old guys in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, how uh, you really do an action figure line. And that, that was where Extreme came out of, was, was that whole culture, as it were. Now, my own take on this is that the people in Cincinnati didn't really understand what G.I. Joe was or, or should be. And I, if, again, if my recollection is correct, Extreme lasted a very short period of time. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And again, I'll have to go back and read the book. It is in there. It's not in great te- detail and not the kind of detail that I had here on what we've been talking about. You know, again, I, I had a bit of the same problem with Cincinnati that I did with Mattel. Even though Alan and Al, the guys who ran the company, said, you know, Wayne's good people. You know, I, I flew out on the corporate jet with Alan and Al to meetings in Cincinnati several times. Um, so I, I would show up with the bosses and, you know, yeah, he's the guy doing the book. But these were two different cultures that had been brought together by a corporate merger or a takeover, actually on the part of Hasbro. And so there was still some, I don't want to use the word animus, but there was certain certainly rivalry. The people in Cincinnati, because their lines were, were doing, some of their lines were doing very well, where Joe was not doing well at the time of the takeover. Um, they were seen as the people who could save Joe. Not Kirk Bazigian, not Greg Bernstein, not Vinny DeLeva, not the people inside, you know, Pawtucket. So I don't know if that answers your question, but there, there was competition there. There was a sense that the people in in Pataka who were, you know, Kirk got assigned to Play-Doh. Um, and he took it, you know, like a gentleman, because he is a gentleman. But that was, you talk about a slap in the face. It's like, you know, Kirk, you go from heading G.I. Joe to Play-Doh. Every, every, uh, every year at JoeCon, Kirk makes it pretty clear in his panels that, you know, they just, uh, that Hasbro really, you know, uh, Sort of skipped a beat on certain things. I mean, he's 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 still every year at JoeCon makes sure that everyone knows, you know, that his plans were nothing but for the the what he considered the betterment of the brand. I mean, he's he's still extremely passionate about that time period and everything and what he thinks Hasbro should do with their properties. So, you know, him and Greg Bernstein, they're really open, great guys. I talked to Greg via yeah. email or whatever. He's he's an awesome guy and. Uh, he is a good guy. He is yeah. a good guy, and you know they were they were very loyal to the brand. They were very loyal to the company, um, and to Kirk's great credit. And he's one of my Facebook friends. That's how I keep in touch with him. And I'm overdue. We're overdue to have lunch, actually. To their credit, they um, they you know they they took it like gentlemen. But I I think privately they felt that they had been. You know, really just cast aside for these for the Wonder Kids out in Cincinnati who proved to be not so wonderful. I was, you know, there were there were so many different conflicts or potential conflicts, and in doing this, I was privy to all of the discussions that led to the layoffs and the reassignments of many people, not just the Joe team, while it was unfolding before it had been announced. Um, 
which was very uncomfortable for me because I, I knew certain people were not going to have a job come Black Tuesday, weeks in advance of Black Tuesday, and I knew certain people were going to be reassigned, um, and I knew what the day was. No one else knew, and so I showed up as usual on, on that Tuesday. It was a Tuesday in August. I remember it very, very, very well, and I write about it in the book. And it, that, that was you know journalistically very difficult for me. It, it was a bit of an ethical dilemma for me. Uh, I think I answered and solved it correctly. Uh, I couldn't tell people, don't come in Tuesday because you're not going to have a job or you're going to be reassigned somewhere. So I had to show up that day and, you know, God, it wasn't as bad for me. I wasn't losing my job, but other people were. And I remember that day so clearly. Just people, and I've since seen this happen in my own newspaper, people called into a manager's office and said, you have till noon, clear your desk out, and your key card key will be deactivated at that point, and you have to sign this paper, and here's your severance package, and good luck, and goodbye. And it was over. Tough. So, that, you know, this book, on a number of different levels, I think did a number of different things that really still is the story of our times. I mean, I'm sure you people know people who have been laid off or reassigned or whose dream jobs turn out not to be such dreams. I know people that have been laid off, and I've seen them apply for every job under the sun and just nothing, so... No, it's, I, have, I, have some, I have dear friends... In fact, again, I don't want to digress here, but I, I have some dear friends who, until very recently, worked at the Providence Journal, where I'm on the staff, and they, um, they had their own Black Tuesday the day after Election Day, and it was just shocking and, you know terrible, terrible thing. Here are people who, and in this case, like like some of the people at Hasbro, had been at the paper for many, many years, and um, they come in and they got the call. But on a larger level, I think that's why if the book did work, why it worked, because it really said something more than just about a toy company. It said something about our culture and about the country. And I, I think a lot of what it said would still be valid today which is why I think Random House finally decided to issue it as an ebook. So I, I know that uh, you know having it having it as an ebook pr- I I I'd venture to say that everyone that owns a physical copy who uses ebooks to any extent is going to is going to grab this um, and if you're listening and you have not read Toy Wars this is not a, a shameless plug or anything like this is really just um, coming from what what you guys know we do here on the podcast and with the declassified organization at conventions and through our magazine, you know, Toy Wars is is very much uh, uh, an ad- not only an addictive read, but it's 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 honestly a must read for any toy collector, uh, especially if there's questions you have, uh, especially if there's ideas you think you have. You know, we're always hearing how GI Joe was not successful. Uh, in the late 80s and in the 90s, and not only will obviously someone like Kirk Bazigian tell you you're dead wrong, but you know the book gives you just this fantastic history of of the GI Joe brand and Hasbro in general, and even Mattel and everything else that was going. And it even takes you back in time to the family history of some of the. I, like I thought that was I wasn't expecting that when I picked up a book called Toy Wars to to be literally just you know dragged back in time to you know hear about the childhoods of some of these executives and these founders and these creators. Like, I thought that was just, you didn't even really have to go there, and you did. So, I mean, the the book itself is, uh, uh, as you've heard on this podcast, or if you're familiar at all with G. Wynn Miller, I mean, like, he was he was in it. You know, he, uh, he had access, and uh, he pretty much spared no... Uh, anecdotal or story expense to uh, to bring the story. So that, yeah, no, I, um, I'm glad it's an e-book, and I really hope that, you know, it's a successful one, uh, assuming you get money for it, I hope. 
I hope I have to make back the uh, advance, which I think I have. I'm not sure. I have to check on that. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just glad it's out as an ebook. Um, thank you for the very kind words too. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this one little anecdote. I, I run into because Rhode Island is a very small place, and as you can imagine, people know each other here. I've run into a number of people who have either interviewed at Hasbro or who have gotten jobs there. When I went back uh, a couple of years ago to do the, the retirement from the CEO story about Al, as I mentioned, I spent a couple of days there. Without, without exception, people I ran into, once I was introduced as the author of Toy Was, they went, oh yeah, well, I, I read that before applying, or I read that, I got that the second I got the job. And, so it's been appreciated, and you know, it, it, as we've been discussing, it was a it was a pretty candid book. I didn't, you know, I didn't disclose trade secrets. Obviously, that was my agreement. But when I met with Alan Allen twenty years ago, it's actually twenty years ago this year in that conference room, and said what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't present it as a demand. It was like, here's what I'd like to do, and they said, fine. And what I wanted to do was tell the story as I saw it, without without varnish, without making stuff up. And both Alan and Al, and, and you know, they were running the company when all these people were moved around and laid off. Both repeatedly said to me, "Yeah, you did what you said you would do. We did what we said we would do, and good for us." So I, it's a rare thing, I can tell you. I, I've written a lot of books and been very lucky in a lot of ways. Um, opportunity doesn't happen every day, so. Before we before we wrap up, I'm just really happy that you uh, you came on because I really I mean the the conversations in your book have been going on for for ages in the collecting community. And we might other than people on Wall Street and people who work at these companies, I'm pretty sure that toy collectors are the only other people who care you know on on such a level about what goes on. And uh, so we, I know we really appreciate it. I read your book, which was uh, about two years ago. I read it on the airplane on the way to the Joe Con in Orlando, Florida. And, and I, I, could, I could not put it down, and I couldn't have had a better companion to read on my way to Joe Con. So I'm really glad, uh, I'm really glad to finally have had it done. Well, I'm glad, Jared, I'm glad we could do it. And Gary, thanks for your participation. I hope it uh, helped you in some way. And uh, if I ever wind up doing a sequel, I'll certainly let you guys know. Oh, that'd be uh, awesome. Please, please do, because that would, uh, I mean, that would just be... Very interesting. It would be very interesting. <laughs> it would be very, very, and I think it would be very well received uh, as well in the Joe community. And I will make a point, and I'm not going to be able to do it today, but in the next few days, I will take a high resolution shot of the tie, but especially of the shoes from oh, different angles. The shoes Excellent. are shoes just made my week. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> like, just to, like, I, it's definitely it, something no one has ever seen. I, I prepared a little bit for this by going down into my cellar where I've got boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff that someday I have to really sort through. But I had to dig around a little bit. But I knew they were there, and I found them. And I, I, I just had an inkling that you guys might appreciate them. So. I was going to say, the minute this podcast goes up, everyone's going to be asking me, hey, does you want to sell them? That's, just, that's, the, that's the blood in the water around here. So Yeah, no, um, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm I don't, not. Hey, I wouldn't sell them. I don't blame you. Yeah. I hold on to those. Those are, those are a real treasure. They are treasures, and, and I've collected a lot of them in, in all my travels as a writer, so I, I hang on to them. Okay, guys, thank you so much. No, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's uh, It's been awesome, and uh, again, if you're listening and you have not read the book, just 
pick up the book. Seriously, it's not even. Please do, please do. It, not even for for Jim and Miller's sake. Obviously, he's not going to make any money if you go on Amazon and buy a hard copy for whatever they're going for now. So just you know, it, it's it's an amazing read, and obviously, please buy the ebook uh, on his behalf because uh, we would like to see another book and. You know, honestly, the as we know, being toy collectors, the best way to get something made is to show support for something else being made. Right, that's so. right. I was just going to say, could you tell us where the book is available online? Oh yeah, you can get it uh, Kindle at Amazon, and you can get it Nook at Barnes and Noble. Excellent. Wonderful. So uh, I actually just bought it myself, but I just to have it in my Kindle. <laughs> Excellent. I like the hardcover for reading purposes better, but um, Kindle is certainly the wave of the future. So, again, if you have anything else you need, shoot me an email. I'll get you these photos uh, in, in the next few days. And uh, good luck, everyone, or oh. both of you guys. <laughs> Thank you very Thanks, much. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye. Bye-bye. So that kicked ass. Joe Declassified Spec Ops.